I used to be weather agnostic. Not anymore. Not anymore. And why? Why have I been dismissive of the weatherman fantasy analyst? Well, we're not weathermen. And this is something we talk about on this show a lot, de-emphasizing the factors beyond the players themselves, the cheat code for canceling out the noise. So I naturally applied that to the weather. I can't measure precisely how weather, in quotes, will impact player performance, so disregard it. The problem is evidence that weather impacts player performance continues to mount. And as I've seen it mount, I've continued to be dismissive. Why? Outliers. Remember that Lions-Eagles game in 2014? Remember that? Oh, yeah. Matthew Stafford versus Nick Foles, 34-20. The Eagles beat the Lions. And nearly a foot of snow fell during the game. So I thought, if NFL teams can score 54 points in a snow game, the snowiest of the snow games we've seen, then fantasy analysts are likely overweighting the weather factor in their projections. But now, after yet another week where the game with the worst conditions ended up being the lowest scoring game, I'm forced to reassess. Over the years, a significant number of games has accumulated, (laughs) right? Snow accumulation, rain accumulation, showing NFL teams scoring less points in the worst of the wintry conditions. And so I started by looking back at this Eagles-Lions game, and I had misremembered the game. I thought there was a lot of passing yards in this game. There was not. In this 34-20 Lions loss to the Eagles, Matthew Stafford was 10 for 25 for 151 yards. Nick Foles, 11 for 22, 179 yards. So both quarterbacks achieved a completion percentage of 50% at most. Neither crested 200 yards passing. One total touchdown pass was thrown in the game. So where did all the scoring come from? Well, LaShawn McCoy, that's where. 29 carries, 217 yards, and two touchdowns. I mean, the ignominious Riley Cooper converted just three of his 10 targets for 74 yards. Eh, That touchdown went to Deshaun Jackson, who was once an eagle. But I remembered Calvin Johnson having a huge week, and that was a figment of my imagination. I remember him catching a long pass, getting a face full of snow, but that wasn't indicative of his stat line. He had three catches for 54 yards on six targets. Joyke Bell was the leading receiver, and this makes sense. This makes sense because in weather, we're talking freezing rain, hail, sleet, snow, with 15-mile-per-hour winds or above, let's just call them winter storm conditions. Make it easy. What happens in winter storm conditions? Well, the ground is more slippery. It's more difficult to get traction. That provides an advantage to the offense. In particular, the player's touching the ball most frequently, the running backs. The running backs are at a great advantage in poor conditions because they know what direction they're moving and are going to move before the defender. So when they make a cut, a defender tries to adjust and react in conditions offering very little traction. It gives a leverage advantage to the offensive skill position player. Gives an advantage to the offensive line. This is why LaShawn McCoy ran for over 200 yards and two touchdowns in that snow game. It's an advantage for the ground game, but it's a disadvantage for the passing game, always. The first disadvantage is the wind. Even without precipitation, the wind changes the course of the football, which makes throws less accurate. So it's intuitive that winter storm conditions would make passes less accurate and therefore passing offenses less productive overall. Uh Uh-oh, weather might matter. Of course it does. It just makes sense. 
And beyond the wind, which is the most important factor, you have the precipitation, rain in particular, making the football more slippery, harder to throw, harder to catch. And like we saw in Buffalo a couple weeks ago, Colts-Bills, precipitation can also limit visibility. The spectators couldn't watch the game. They had no visibility. They couldn't see what was happening. They couldn't watch the football sailing through the air. They couldn't see it. That's part of the reason why Jacoby Brissett was 11 for 22 for 69 yards in that game. And Nathan Peterman and Joe Webb were a combined 7 for 16 for 93 yards. In the harshest conditions that teams play football games in the North, it dramatically impacts the passing game. It does. It just does. It just makes sense. It's hard to grip the ball. Then when you throw the ball, the wind changes its trajectory. And then the receiver with slippery frozen gloves has a more difficult time squeezing the football and converting the catch, if they, assuming they can see it through the fog, right? So then the question is, well, how much does weather matter? Oh, the question. Yes, the question. And the answer is we don't know. We don't know what the throttling factor is in these weather games. There's not enough data on the precise conditions that were faced during games going back through time to measure how wind and precipitation and temperature all join together to diminish passing productivity. We just don't know because it's also not possible to monitor the weather conditions in real time on Sunday morning across 10 different stadiums in the north. The north in the north with Jon Snow. Hello, Jon Snow. Have you seen the conditions in Paul Brown Stadium today? Good day to be a man from the north, don't you think? Could use the warmth of the dragon fire. Yes. And you can't predict what the weather will be during the game precisely either. So we have a lack of historical information, the untenable nature of real-time tracking, and the inability to accurately forecast what wind and precipitation and temperature will look like two hours from kickoff after lineups are set. So what do you do? What do you do? It's established. We can't just dismiss the weather because we can't measure all these things with precision and implement projection changes efficiently in the lead up to these games. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, I think we can all agree that in the month of December, none of us want to play players playing in the worst conditions. So create a winter storm designation. And if you see a winter storm will impact a game, you must throttle those players in the passing game by some arbitrary amount. Or if you're playing in DFS cash game contests, just cross those players off your list. Just say the floor is too low. There's too much risk that we're going to have a Jacoby Brissett 69 yard game. I can't play T.Y. Hilton, even if the Buffalo Bills had a weak secondary, which they don't. But even if they did, going to go ahead and cross T.Y. Hilton off the list. That's all you can do. But that's better than just playing players in passing games who will be severely impacted by weather at the same rate you would have if they were playing in a dome. You just can't do it. Now, fortunately, we've only had a couple games like this. Last week, we had the Browns-Bears game where 23 total points were scored. And again, neither quarterback threw for more than 200 yards. I mean, this is a consistent theme. When a stadium is impacted by a winter storm, the quarterbacks struggle to throw for more than 200 yards. You don't want receivers tethered to those passing games. You just don't. If you have better options in those situations, you take them. So on average, once every other week, you're going to have a game that will be impacted by severe winds, severe precipitation, all of the above, in addition to potentially below freezing temperatures. Classify that as a winter storm game. 
update your projections accordingly and move on. If there is a chance of snow during the game, that doesn't qualify. Light rain doesn't qualify. 15 degrees and clear doesn't qualify. But you can't let winter storm conditions dissuade you from playing the running backs in those games. Because even last week, we didn't think Jordan Howard would perform well against a quality Browns rush defense, and he didn't. 22 carries, 44 yards, 2 yards a carry, but, 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 of course... He scored the all-important touchdown on two occasions during that game. No receptions, 44 yards total, and yet two touchdowns returned value for Jordan Howard owners. <laughs> and it had absolutely nothing to do with the weather. If anything, Jordan Howard rushed for two yards of carry in conditions that helped him. Look at Duke Johnson. He was the high-scoring fantasy asset for that game. Seven receptions, 81 yards, and another four carries for 20 yards. The running backs were the lead scorers, and that makes sense. And now we're heading into week 17. And this is the reason why no halftime exists. The fantasy season is over. So go get no halftime by downloading it in the App Store, enter the promo code UNDERWORLD, and get a 50% deposit bonus on your first deposit of $50 or more, and you can start posting or accepting single-player bets. Just pick your favorite player for this week. Maybe it's Josh Reynolds. Sneaky wide receiver play for the LA Rams. We're going to have Drew Dinkmeyer on the show today. He's a DFS expert. I'm going to ask him about Josh Reynolds' potential. And if you want to go beyond single-player props, you should go get Draft. Draft is the best for the seasonal fantasy gamer who may have just lost a heartbreaking matchup in their fantasy championship. Maybe you won the fantasy championship and you want to roll over those winnings. Go get draft. Use the promo code UNDERWORLD. Just go to playdraft.com or access it in your app store and create a four-man fantasy league just for week 17 and set up a roster via snake draft with three of your friends. Just because it's week 17 doesn't mean the fantasy season has to end and it can continue on draft. And we need to go talk to Drew Dinkmeyer. He is one of my favorite people in the industry. He plays all sports. He plays all formats. We're going to ask him about everything you've wanted to know. I'll ask him about the Browns. I'll ask him about Jeff Janis. I'll ask him about the plays of the week in DFS for Week 17. We'll even ask him if Russell Westbrook is overrated. So let's go talk to Drew Dinkmeyer. Follow him at Drew Dinkmeyer on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program, a show favorite, Daily Roto founder, Drew Dinkmeyer. Ha <laughs> ha! Talk to me. I am so excited to be here, Matt. This is this is my favorite podcast of the year. Last year we gave out a bunch of hot fire takes. Some weren't so good. I don't remember. I don't remember. We burn the shows after they're done. We're like we burn the boats. Right When the Explorer arrives, they burn the boats, we burn the shows, we have no idea, especially week to week. I'm happy to store the takes in the off-season for the future so we can go back for Told You So, but in terms of the week-to-week advice, hey, who are the plays of the week in week 17, that will be burned. Yeah, and those, I mean, there's there's no use for most of those. I, I've, I may I do those are all the shows that I do. That is the content that I produce, and they they do not have any longevity to them. That's yeah, in season takes, man. Yeah, this is what we've chosen to do. 
right? This is the profession that we've chosen, the in-season takes. But I would say that what we did in our last show was highly entertaining, and we did provide a lot of evergreen content. A, concepts you can apply every week, every year into perpetuity, number one. And number two, some longer view takes on players that have since come to fruition. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about players with a longer view. We're going to talk about best practices for daily fantasy, which is always critical when we talk to you. I want to learn about how to be a better fantasy gamer. So which player has been the most pleasant surprise for you this year? I think you could pretty much pick any Los Angeles Ram not named Sammy Watkins and feel pretty good about it. That's right. Whether it's whether it's Robert Woods, whether it's Jared Goff, whether it's Todd Gurley. I think what we've seen from that offense this year is basically Todd Gurley played well this year. Yeah, Todd Gurley was okay this year. Well, yeah. Let me hold on. Let me look up Todd Gurley real quick. Hold on. Just let me type it in. Hold on. Go to playerprofiler.com. Todd with a U R, right? U R L E Y E Y. Okay. Yeah. So it's a U R L E Y. Todd Gurley. Oh my God! <laughs> what? He scored over twenty-five fantasy points a game. He led all running backs in receiving yards. Who the hell is this guy? Where did he come from? A 40% dominator rating by a running back? How is this possible? Best comparable, LaDainian Tomlinson. How is he not a first-round pick in fantasy football? Because I remember clearly first rounds happening all year, all offseason in 2017. Not once did I ever hear Todd Gurley's name mentioned in the first round, ever. This, This is the poison that Jeff Fisher was to all of us. He infected all of us. He was a virus that destroyed all of football in Los Angeles slash St. Louis. And he infected all of our brains with bad takes on Todd Gurley. And all of us were terrified. There were the Trent Richardson 2.0 comps. That had no way. No one said that. (laughs) People called him Trent Richardson. No, that's not right. I've heard this. I'm not going to name names. No, we never name names on this program. Never. But a lot of very well-known analysts refer to Todd Gurley as Trent Richardson 2.0. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. You know, maybe pick a guy that isn't taking extreme care of his body. How about take a guy from a college where they manufacture running backs with their running game, and then when those running backs get to the pros, they tend to underwhelm. But none of those describe Todd Gurley. No. In second, I mean, you had Le'Veon Bell and David Johnson basically available to you in the second round with Todd Gurley this year, which is incredible. And in hindsight, it looks so obvious and so stupid that this guy was a generational prospect when he was coming out of Georgia that everybody was raving about his ability not only in the running game but in the receiving game. And then he had the knee injury that started to to, to uh, bring in some doubt and some concerns. And then last year they were just it looked like they were playing nine on eleven out there Weird. with the offensive schemes that they were running. There was just no room anywhere. And you you bring in a new coaching staff. You bring in uh, Whitworth, who I think really hasn't gotten enough credit for the Rams' turnaround this season. Is is been the play of of Andre Whitworth? He's getting credit on this program. Yeah, he's yes. getting credit on the Underworld Pod because we don't have a coach fetish on this show. Yeah, and so you, that whole offense has just opened up incredibly. And you saw, you know, Robert Woods in a real offense outside of kind of the hey, he's just a blocking receiver in Buffalo. You saw uh, Jared Goff look like the guy he was in college, you know, zipping throws around the field, 
um, yes. throw, throwing balls into tight windows, but also, you know, using kind of the play action as mobility in the pocket to get the ball down the field. And you saw Todd Gurley in space. And so this whole offense is completely different than any expectation anyone could have had coming into the season. And frankly, it's a breath of fresh air, not only from a fantasy football perspective, but just in real life, we need more fun offenses in the NFL. 40 point games. This offense is fun to watch every How week. How fun is it to watch a team go out and score 40 points? Hell, it's real fun. It's amazing. The biggest difference with the Rams is not actually the coach. It is, like you said, the offensive line. The offensive line could block no one, and they invested in the offensive line heavily, both in the draft and in free agency. I mean, that's how you have a revolution in the offensive line where Todd Gurley goes from having a bottom 25% run blocking unit to a top three run blocking unit on playerprofiler.com from 2016 to 2017. And the same thing with the protection grade. When you look at Jared Goss protection in 2016 versus 2017, it was a complete reversal. And then now you're seeing the complete reversal of the offensive efficiency. If you can win at the point of attack, if you can give your running back more room to operate, if you can give your quarterback more time to operate, everything changes in the NFL. It can turn on a dime just by pulling some levers on the offensive line, and that's what the front office did. And if you had to trace the history of the LA Rams back, the source of this resurgence is this dedication to investing in the offensive line and you won't hear many analysts talk about that because they fetishize the coach over and over and over again and I'd much rather give the credit to the players that are putting their bodies on the line that are risking catastrophic injuries and brain trauma to block 320 pound defensive linemen and pave the way for Todd Gurley to score touchdowns I'd like to credit those guys once in a while. One guy I'm not going to credit, though, is any member of the Green Bay Packers because this <laughs> team is a catastrophe. And it starts with a front office with Ted Thompson. It goes to Mike McCarthy. It goes to all members of the offense, all members of the defense. This team should be so much better. Ten years from now, we'll be looking back and we'll think, oh, wow, Aaron Rodgers, career accomplishments, MVPs, one of the best quarterbacks we've ever seen. And you look back and you see, oh, wow, Wait, they had how many playoff appearances? Their record was what with Aaron Rodgers? And it is one of the most egregious management failures in the history of football. Now the Packers are being accused of improperly using the injured reserve designation on Aaron Rodgers a second time because you can't put a player back on injured reserve for the same injury from which they already came back from and they have not re-aggravated. So there's no proof that they submitted to the league that there was a re-aggravation of Aaron Rodgers' shoulder injury and therefore he's not eligible to go back on injured reserve. And according to the bylaws of the NFL, they should have to release him. And they deserve that. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers deserves it. Everyone deserves better in Green Bay. Everyone's better off if you just let Aaron Rodgers go, fire everyone, and just start over. I mean, it is the one franchise that no one talks about that would be better off if you just hit the reset button. There's a bunch of teams. You can go down the list of teams that would be better off if you just hit the reset button. Few would mention the Green Bay Packers, but I believe the Green Bay Packers are that. And I say all of this as the preamble, of course. 
to the real question that I have for you, Drew, which is what will happen to Jeff Janis? It's, cl- it's clearly not going to happen in a Green Bay Packer uniform. I mean, Fuck what? them, man. Who is Michael Clark? Who is Michael Clark? Where did Michael Clark come from? That's a great question. I don't know who he is. I had to look him up, thankfully. There is this website called playerprofiler.com that seems to have every fucking player. I didn't even know we had it. This is where you know you're onto something. As an entrepreneur, if you're in my shoes, I didn't know we had Michael Clark. But this operation is humming along so efficiently at Roto Underworld that a Michael Clark just appears on the site without my knowledge. And I'm looking at him going, who the hell is this guy? He looks like an unathletic move tight end. Do you understand what that means? Do you know what an unathletic move tight end is? Move tight ends are already suboptimal, right? We have the Steven Andersons, which we can be enamored with. Great athleticism, but they're a tweener. Doesn't really have a role in today's NFL. Maybe can carve out a Jared Cook type role somewhere, somehow. But that's assuming exceptional athleticism, especially size-adjusted athleticism. That's the siren song of the move tight end. But Michael Clark's not athletic. (laughs) So what? What? You're going to give this guy an opportunity to flash and not Jeff Janis. Fuck you, honestly. Just fuck you, man. I'm upset. This You can see my face in the monitor. <laughs> this is not an act. This is every everyone that appreciates raw ability and the path that football players have to take to get recognition, to earn contract extensions. Jeff Janis has invested, he has sacrificed, he has earned the opportunity to flash and to increase his value in the marketplace this offseason, and they are withholding that, and they should be ashamed of themselves. I spend my entire life working on projections. All I do during the course of the week is work on projections, and there are occasional times during the course of an NFL or NBA or MLB season that I'm watching a game and I see a player that I have literally never seen the name before. And Michael Clark was that case. I thought this was a creative player. I thought I was watching a video game and there's just this Michael Clark that randomly populated. Yeah. I have never seen this person before in my life. I'm like, where's Trevor Davis? Where's Jeff Janis? What is a Michael Clark? Where did he come from? Generic <laughs> created Madden player. Right there on the screen for us instead of Jeff Janis. And in a, in a situation where obviously you should be auditioning your roster for the future. And they've just made the decision that Jeff Janis is not part of the part of the future. I, w- the, the stuff that we've seen from him on the field in, in games when he's had the very limited opportunities has suggested that he warrants more opportunities. But he he must be the worst practice player in the history of the NFL or they're very bad at talent evaluation. Or it's even more insidious. Or they love their special teamers so much, they do not want other teams Mm. to see him in excel in a wide receiver role, and they're banking on those teams not having tape from two years ago of Green Bay playing Arizona in the playoffs or forgetting that that ever fucking happened. It did, I remember. And so they can just put Jeff Janis on a shelf in the basement and hope no one notices so they can sign him at a minimal salary level this offseason to retain their special teams gunner. This won't work. The Patriots notice. The Patriots always notice. They will notice. This is how they got Rex Burkhead. That's right. That's right. But to Cincinnati's credit, they did allow Rex Burkhead 
to play in a starting role and be featured in Week 17, and that was an audition. That made Rex Burkett a lot of money. They did him a solid. For all those years toiling away in special teams, in Week 17, they allowed him to audition. And for the Green Bay Packers to not allow Jeff Janis to audition in Week 17 is so offensive to me, offensive to my sensibilities of my sense of fairness, my sense of appreciating athleticism and hard work. I'm speechlessly enraged. You know, I think we just brought this full circle, too, because I do remember us touting Rex Burkhead very hard in Week 17 DFS leagues last year. We did. We did. That one did not get burned. Oh, I have all of the film that was scheduled to get burned shipped out in this one reel of film. I, I, I store the podcast on reels of film suddenly. So there's a reel of film. With it. Yes, it's right there. Play Rex Burkhead Week 17, 2016, guest Drew Dinkmeyer. That happened. That's all you need to remember from the last time Drew Dinkmeyer appeared on this show. Play Rex Burkhead. Don't worry about those Corey Coleman and Amari Cooper takes. Just the Rex Burkhead Week 17 DFS take. That's the takeaway from last year's show. All right, let me look this up. We're going to Patriots.com, front office staff. Click on bio, the biography of one Nick Casario, director of player personnel, director of player personnel. This guy has some clout in New England, right? Director of player personnel. Casario is a native of Lindhurst, Ohio. He earned his degree in finance from John Carroll. I don't know that school. And later earned his master's in business administration from Saginaw Valley State, the home of Jeff Janis. Casario was a three-time academic all-conference selection at John Carroll. Nick and his wife, I don't know why I'm continuing to read about his (laughs) wife. doesn't matter. His children are Whitley and Chatham. I hope they're well. Good luck in school this year, Whitney and Chatham. It doesn't matter. I'm a fan of Nick Casario because he went to Saginaw Valley State, and I know that he pays attention to Saginaw Valley State football and has seen Jeff Janis play in college. That's all we need is one director of player personnel out there that has an unusual affection, affinity for Saginaw Valley State, Saginaw Valley grads, and by extension, necessarily, an affection for Jeff Janis. So you could absolutely imagine Nick Casario getting on the phone the day the season is over and calling Jeff Janis' agent and feeling him out. We know they would know anyway. The Patriots have been quietly building a dossier on Jeff Janis for years. Like We know this to be the case. But now we have this direct connection of the director of player personnel to Jeff Janis's alma mater. <laughs> he will be free. He will be free. I mean, that is it. The Patriots don't really have a third receiver, an impact third receiver. They just have Danny Amendola. But I've always thought about what, what if they decided to move Brandon Cooks inside? Wouldn't that be exciting to move Brandon Cooks inside and make him a volume slot receiver? And then you have Hogan and Janice on the outside, and you just have Cooks just zipping back and forth on the inside. Imagine Brandon Cooks playing the Danny Amendola role, how much volume he would command. I mean, it's exciting. Again, we know Julian Edelman is scheduled to return. He should be back. He signed an extension. So we hope that all the best to Julian Edelman. I hope he recovers and he's 
great again. I like Julian Edelman a lot. He's also a warrior, right? He has been sacrificing his body for football and for our entertainment for many years. He's had numerous concussions. He had one of the greatest catches in football history. I love Julian Edelman, and it would be great to see him in a number four wide receiver role. The, th- the thing that you you know about New England's uh, front office and organization as well is the fact that they value optionality and upside. And that was very clear in the Rex Burkhead signing, which is they knew at the at the very least we have an elite special teams player at the very least elite special teams player and running back depth. So if you see how well Jeff Janis has played on special teams the last few years, you know that they're evaluating him as, hey, worst case scenario, we're investing a little bit to improve our special teams, which we value highly because we do a lot of things that are different than other teams in the league. We don't just punt the ball through the end zone for touchbacks. We make teams return it because we know we're gaining three yards per return. We do things like that because we value special teams at the New England Patriots. So the optionality upside of, hey, here is free value of, at the very least, we're going to pay you to be a special teamer, but if you hit the upside that we have at the wide receiver position, we have all the profit in the world on your contract. And that's what they hit with Rex Burkhead, and that's why Jeff Janis would make a lot of sense. Unbeknownst to them, those apes in Green Bay running that franchise right into the ground, They've been auditioning Jeff Janis for the Patriots all along. (laughs) They think they're clever, hiding him away. What all they're doing is making the price the Patriots ultimately pay lower. They've been unknowingly providing future value for the Patriots all along with their incompetent handling of Jeff Janis. This has already happened. I I feel like Jeff Janis is already in a New England Patriots uniform. It goes without saying at this point. I'm just looking, I'm looking forward to these these clips recirculating in June. It's a foregone conclusion. I'm, I'm, I'm already excited about it. I'm already excited about seeing them pop up on my Twitter feed. New England Patriots wide receiver Jeff Janis. Get used to it. I also look forward to the day when we think of the Cleveland Browns as a contender, a playoff contender at the very least. And I think they're close, closer than most imagine. What should Cleveland do in this 2018 draft to break this cycle of losing, to gain exit velocity from the doldrums? I think they're pretty close, too. And you look at the above-average offensive line, you look at the elite young skill talent, whether it's David Njoku, whether it's Corey Coleman, whether it's Duke Johnson— you look at the impact Miles Garrett has had on the defense. They already already have a very, very good run defense already. And Miles Garrett's going to bring that pass rush. They they need one more pass rusher, and then they need to free up the secondary and improve the secondary to be an above average defense. And they're just a quarterback away. So my question to you, Matt, is would you consider the idea of with one and four, maybe? Would you even consider the idea of picking two quarterbacks and having them compete and kind of figure this out because the the most excess value you can have in the NFL is a is a young quarterback under contract. I I don't think stylistically it can work. Like I don't think like ego wise and sharing reps and whatnot and development wise it can work. So I think you kind of have to just try to pick the best one. But from a management of asset standpoint, from just like playing the game on sp- in a spreadsheet, I think it's a really compelling idea. But I don't think with human emotion it it would actually work. Here's a way you could get away with it. As long as one of the quarterbacks drafted was Lamar Jackson. Mm. Then you could make the argument to the fan base that we're just getting a weapon here. He might play quarterback. He might play wide receiver. We don't know. I mean, you and I know. Yeah. You and I know Lamar Jackson is going to be a high-quality 
quarterback at the next level. I think Lamar Jackson is the second best quarterback prospect in this draft after Baker Mayfield. And the beauty is NFL draft analysts think the exact opposite. (laughs) They're obsessed with Josh Rosen and Sam Darnold, the West Coast quarterbacks that have been groomed to play the position for years. They stand 6'4", 220, high-velocity throwing arms. They look the part. Now, they haven't been super productive in college, not overly efficient, but they look the part. And that's enough, you see. That, that's enough. That's enough to be the number one and number two overall picks. Yes, yes, yes. But then we have Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield doesn't look the part. No, no, no. Baker Mayfield, a little short. Oh, reminds me of Johnny Manziel in his swagger, his short, stubby swagger. The short, stubby swaggering reminds me of a guy that flamed out with Cleveland earlier, Johnny Manziel. So we can't repeat Johnny Manziel. In fact, we can't even draft him, even if we believe that he's nothing like Johnny Manziel, we can't draft him because the fan base may believe that. You can't risk the ignorant fan base being uh, incorrectly evaluating your quarterback draft pick. Who would risk that? You can't have that. You can't have the fan base misunderstand the ability and the potential of your draft pick. Even if that's possible, I would never consider drafting Baker Mayfield. He's too similar to Johnny Manziel. (laughs) I mean, what? That's a conversation that's happening in Cleveland. You know it, that they just can't push the button on Baker Mayfield. They just can't bring themselves to go there. Because it would just be too damaging for their fan base. As if their fan base hasn't been through enough. You're already at rock bottom. You might as well just continue to antagonize your fan base with the Baker Mayfield pick. So, here's what they should do. You can't invest the number one overall pick in quarterback and then take another quarterback later in the first round or in the second or third round. No, if it's the number one pick, that has to signal complete faith that this is the new franchise quarterback. So it wouldn't make any sense to draft a quarterback number one and then to turn around 10 picks later or a round later and draft yet another quarterback. No, but... But if you're not drafting quarterback with the first pick, then it gives you the flexibility to do that. If you say, okay, we're going to take the best defensive player available at one, which is what I think they should do. I agree with you. They should just take the best available defensive player at one. And then with that Texans pick, select Baker Mayfield, who I believe will still be available because NFL player personnel departments outside the Patriots... (laughs) focus on all the wrong sorts of details he's 6-1 this guy grabbed his crotch on the sideline he must be johnny manzel take baker mayfield and then turn around later in the first round or in the early second round draft lamar jackson because lamar jackson could fall this is what could happen to lamar jackson he could fall into the second round like Derek carr fell into the second round we've seen plenty of good quarterbacks fall into the second round who we thought were going to be first round picks Teddy Bridgewater fell all the way to pick 32 in the first round so we've seen plenty of quarterbacks that were projected to be top 20 picks fall well outside the top 20 that's where we are at right now with Lamar Jackson he's projected to be a fringe top 20 pick drafted around the same area as Tim Tebow because a lot of people think of him like a Tim Tebow even though he's not so I think they should draft Baker Mayfield and Lamar Jackson. I think that's genius. How much fun would that be? I would love that. It would be amazing. I 
one of them is going to be generational. One of the two. We know it. I think so as well. They ha- So they have uh, three second-round picks. They have their own pick, the Eagles' second-round pick, which will be a late pick, and then the Texans' second-round pick as well. That's what they sh- – yes, that's it. They should use both the Texans' picks on quarterbacks. So the challenge is when you talk about the fan base and, like, managing their expectations oh. – this is my least favorite conversation to have in sports. But it's one that's going to be had in that front office. Oh, yeah. It's why the Texans did not draft Derek Carr. Mm-hmm. They were worried about the damage. Too many cars. That David Carr already perpetrated on the psyche of their fan base and that their fans would be superstitious. <laughs> that there was a car curse lingering over the franchise. And so they were protecting their superstitious fans <laughs> from questioning the viability of Derek Carr in the NFL, even though he wasn't even a first-round pick, it would have been an early second-round pick, but they passed on him to take a guard that we haven't heard from since. What's stupider, having a car curse that you're concerned about or making an entire quarterback evaluation based on the difference of three inches? That's it, yeah. That basically Josh Rosen and Sam Darnold are better quarterback prospects because they have three inches of height that Baker Mayfield has. Or a crotch grab. Yeah. If he hadn't grabbed his crotch, the volume on the Johnny Manziel comparisons would not be nearly as loud. A crotch grab. A crotch grab. Really? The other thing about those comparisons, so the thing that Manziel, looking back on, because I was kind of high on him coming out of college as well, but looking back, the things that derailed Johnny outside of all the -the off-the-field stuff from a prospect evaluation standpoint was, hey, this guy had unbelievable offensive line with him uh two players that were drafted in the top five and then mike evans as well unbelievable talent around him baker mayfield has also had that benefit with guys like joe mixon dd westbrook but those guys left and he got even better this year oh so good yeah so i I think johnny manziel was absolutely propped up by his supporting cast that's rarely talked about it's all about the substance abuse no he was overrated all along it was also the system Right, so they brought in the option spread, which props up all quarterbacks at the next level. I mean, I agree with that. I agree you'd rather have a quarterback coming from a pro-style offense, and that was the argument for Carson Wentz, and it was true. You want that. But just because a player is playing in a spread offense shouldn't preclude you from drafting him. So, yeah, I, I like the idea of taking multiple quarterbacks with two of these first five picks in the first two rounds because there's so much excess value when you hit on the quarterback position in a draft. And that's why you see teams like the Seahawks be able to have an extended period of time where they're competing for Super Bowls before they have to go and pay Russell Wilson's extension. And then your depth starts to take a hit once you start to, once you have to pay that quarterback big. So taking those chances and developing that talent by having multiple outs when you've already got a lot of key pieces at key positional you know, running back, wide receiver, offensive line, defensive line. You have a lot of building blocks to build around already. Um, I like taking the chances on, I mean, they're going to have four picks in like the top 35, 36 picks in the draft. Spoken like a true GPP expert chasing the asymmetrical upside on the young quarterback. It just makes sense. If we look at the best value players in the NFL player pool, by a wide margin, it's all those quality quarterbacks on rookie deals. It's that pool of players and then a chasm to the next tier of value. The value is extraordinary in those young quarterbacks that are playing at a high level, still locked up in rookie deals. Thinking outside the box, Drew Dinkmeyer. We talked about the Patriots thinking outside the box. They did it again last week 
deploying Dion Lewis in a featured role, despite Dion Lewis not being big enough, right? He's just not big enough to be a featured back. That's all we've ever heard about players like Dion Lewis. He's under 200 pounds, right? He's 193 pounds. He's not big at all. And I've been pleading with NFL teams to play their satellite backs more reps, more touches, get them the ball as much as possible. The best example this season is the underutilization of Tariq Cohen, the overutilization of Jordan Howard. It would be like the Patriots if the Patriots were giving all the carries to Mike Gillisley and refusing to use Deion Lewis. They did that early in the season. They've learned that Deion Lewis can withstand a huge workload, and he did that last week. I mean, you needed to have Deion Lewis in fantasy football if you wanted to compete with those teams rostering Todd Gurley. So the rosters that I saw win the fantasy championship last week that did not feature Todd Gurley, who'd they have at running back? Deion Lewis. The satellite back plus zero RB monster. So were you playing Deion Lewis in DFS the last few weeks? You noticed this trend that the Patriots have said, okay, Deion Lewis is our featured back. And if we're scoring a lot of points, that means his ceiling is incredibly high. So first, I'd like to shamefully admit that I lost my season-long championship with Deion Lewis and Todd Gurley. Wait, what? I lost last week in the seasonal final with Deion Lewis and Todd Gurley in my home league. How did that happen? How? We play deeper rosters. Uh-huh. So it's a, it's a shallow league in general because we just haven't found enough owners to kind of stick it out with us in all three sports because we do MLB, NBA, and NFL. And uh, I lost to a monster team that had Melvin Gordon, Kareem Hunt, Julio Jones, DeAndre Hopkins. It just had everybody, everybody. You had everybody else. You had Deion Lewis, Todd Gurley. Your opponent had everybody else. Everyone else. I had like, you know, Brandon Cooks and AJ Green. I had some disappointments. Alshon Jeffrey? No, I did not have Alshon. He was the team killer of the team killers, right? I mean. Zero. Woo! But yeah, so Deion Lewis, I I could not have been more upset with the Rex Burkhead offseason signing for the Patriots because in my keeper leagues, and I only play like two seasonal kind of keeper leagues, I drafted Deion Lewis the year before at the very end of the draft, knowing that this is like, you know, an IR spot basically that I'm dealing with, with Deion Lewis. Or I picked him, excuse me, I didn't draft him. I picked him up at the end of the year after he had gotten hurt. And so when I came into the keeper season to make my decisions, we only keep like four or five players. I couldn't reasonably keep Deion Lewis, even though the cheap tag, because they had signed Rex Burkhead and Mike Gillisley. And I didn't know if that signaled, hey, we're not in on Dion, and they extended James White. I didn't know if that signaled, hey, we're not in on Dion Lewis long term. So I ended up keeping guys like Tyrell Williams. Huge mistake in retrospect now. But I always thought Dion Lewis had the opportunity, based on what he did in college, to be utilized more uh, aggressively. He was a guy that averaged over 23 touches per game in college in his two seasons at Pitt. He was used as a workhorse back in college, and he didn't really have big injury concerns in college. So why not push the envelope a little bit more with Deion Lewis? And last week when James White was ruled out, it was all systems go. Because oh. then you, you know at, at the very least, the very least, this, this is now a running back taking over his usual 14 to 18 carry role with James White's passing down role. And if the upside is, the upside would be that, hey, they don't use Gillis Lee at the goal line 
and you get these opportunities, which they only use Gillisley from the one. They didn't use him from like the five and out, which is where Deion Lewis ended up scoring on a screen pass. So Deion Lewis was my highest owned player last week in DFS. Yeah, baby. Um, because it was all systems go. And the same thing this week, the Patriots are playing are playing uh, to lock up home field advantage. Mike Gillisley's on the injury report uh, early in the week. We'll see where James White and Rex Burkett are. But if you get situations where that backfield gets condensed in terms of who's on the field for snaps, Deion Lewis has shown he can manage this workload. And I think the Patriots know that the depth that running back is important because it's a position that in, incurs a lot of turnover during the course of the season. So they loaded up their roster with that depth. But now at the end of the season, they're going to take advantage of getting their best players on the field in the best positions. And Deion Lewis is their most complete back. Oh, his breakaway run rate. So runs of 15 yards or more, 5.8%. So more than 5% of his runs are going for 15 yards or more. That's number 10 in the NFL. He's also number three in yards per carry, number 12 in yards per touch, both well above five. So this guy is making plays in all phases, and he's a great receiver. So you see James White's out. You go to his catch rate, 92.9% catch rate. This guy's a better receiver than James White. He's a better runner than Mike Gillisley. He's just great. And if you go to his profile, there are very few running backs that weigh under 200 pounds that have a 34% dominator rating on playerprofiler.com. I mean, that's why we continued to believe that Todd Gurley was an exceptional talent because he had the 34% dominator rating just like Deion Lewis. And Deion Lewis also has a mirror image college target share to Todd Gurley. Todd Gurley had a 10.3% target share at Georgia. That's how we knew. Okay, if used properly, Todd Gurley has a Le'Veon Bell all-purpose skill set, and he showed that by catching more passes this season for more yards than Le'Veon Bell in the passing game. Deion Lewis did that as well at the college level, had that high target share. So he looks like a little Todd Gurley. I mean, that's really what he is. He's like Todd Gurley minus 30 pounds. It's amazing. And then, sure enough, last week, the two top-scoring running backs, oh, Todd Gurley, Deion Lewis, please, NFL coaches, I'm begging you, forget these preconceived notions about running back size, especially in Chicago. You're a Bears fan. How many touches should Tariq Cohen be getting? Oh, my gosh. He, he should be in a 10 to 15 touch role. He should be in the Alvin Kamara role every single week. Right. And early in the season, honestly, they were using him that way. And it looked like they knew what they were doing. It yeah. turns out they just didn't have Benny Cunningham available. Oh. And they didn't know what. <laughs> Come on! Which, think about how stupid that sentence is. Come on! They didn't have Benny Cunningham available. That was the key indicator. F you, Chicago coaches! <laughs> so, like, why are you spending, you know, mid round picks on these guys if you're not going to use them? Like, if you, if you invest in Tariq Cohen, you have a very specified idea of what Tariq Cohen is doing on the field for you. Use him in that manner and provide your quarterback with. A, who has an unbelievable lack of explosive skill talent around him. Probably the least explosive skill talent unit in the entire NFL that he's working with. Probably? Probably? Maybe the Colts? I mean, Hilton just elevates up. Yeah, Kendall Wright as the number one option with Josh Bellamy. Get the yeah. fuck out of here. At North Carolina A&T, Tariq Cohen posted a 40% dominator rating. I think Tariq Cohen could comfortably, comfortably absorb 20 touches a game. I think Tariq Cohen should be featured, and I think Jordan Howard should be the short yardage back. 
If you want to win games in Chicago, if you want to deploy your players in a way that maximizes winning, that's what you would do. That's how you would use Tariq Cohen. So you talked about the team you lost to in your home league championship. You mentioned that that team had Julio Jones. And my question for you is, did you catch the irony (laughs) of the Julio Jones Week 16 performance in which no other first or second round pick in redraft showed up? The one guy that showed up in Week 16 who was drafted in the first two rounds of redraft leagues was, of all players, Julio Jones, who had vanished all the other previous weeks. I mean, this guy, this guy. How many Julio Jones owners enjoyed that performance? I saw that week 16 performance and I threw a pen at the wall. I'm not going to say I threw a pen through the computer screen because that I respect my computer too much. (laughs) Computer, I'm looking at you right now, computer. I do so much work on you. You are the driving force behind my career. I would never throw an object at you. You're a beautiful machine. I respect computers. Threw a pen at the wall, though. I was breaking things because I had Julio Jones in the FFPC and just every week giving me no touchdowns and no touchdowns, no touchdowns. And then last week, finally, he gave us a top three performance. I mean, I was fooled all year penciling in Julio Jones to GPP lineups, thinking he had this incredible upside, you know, over 200 yards, maybe multiple touchdowns. Maybe. Not last week. Once a year. Not last week against Marshawn Lattimore. That was the other thing, is I didn't think that Julio Jones was an upside play in GPPs last week either. So Julio Jones was just laughing at me all (laughs) season. Julio has once a year where he goes for 50. 50. And it drives you insane trying to find that one time a year. Last year was against Carolina. This year was against Tampa Bay. 12 for 253 and two. It is the most tantalizing upside of any wide receiver in the entire NFL. And it is mind boggling that it does not hit more consistently. We finally saw at the end of the season in the second half, at least Atlanta start to turn the market share over to him a little bit more like early in the season. He was like 25, 26% market share, which is, I mean, that's what you, you throw to an inefficient wide receiver one when you have no other wide receivers, no offense does Brian. When you have Julio Jones, you get up into the 30s. Like, that's a guy you target in the 30% range. Right. Um, And they started doing that at the end of the season. They still have absolutely no creativity around the red zone in how to use him at all. And that is mind-boggling and frustrating and will continue to be frustrating. But Well, not for long, because I don't think his career is going to last well into his 30s. No, we're seeing the last vestiges right now of explosive high upside Julio Jones. There's, I would guess, two more years. We're in the moment. We don't realize, oh. He's going to be 29 next year. We need to enjoy these moments. This seven catches, 149 yards. He's a top three option, even without scoring a touchdown. This is tremendous. We should be enjoying this, but we're not enjoying it enough. We just think, oh, this is what Julio Jones does, even though he didn't do it all season, except that one game against Tampa, and then week 16 when everyone's eliminated. He laughs in people's faces matched up with Marshawn Lattimore, unbelievable performance, and they will continue to be fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer and farther and farther and farther between. How does he have three touchdowns this season? Three. How is that possible? He's not going to age well, Drew. He is not going to age well. More more questionable toe. That's what we're going to get. Toe, foot, ankle, 
ankle, foot, toe, toe, foot, ankle. Who does that remind you of? The big, explosive wide receiver with bad toes, knees, ankles, Calvin Johnson. Yeah. I mean, this is the Calvin Johnson career path. Eventually, he's just going to say, enough. This hurts too much. I've been playing football in constant pain for 10 years. Enough, 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 enough. If you started the season with Julio Jones in Dynasty, you should have traded him already if you listened to this show. So I failed to play Julio Jones in the games when he was playing at his best in DFS, and that's not surprising. There are multiple players that I just miss during the season. I just play them on the wrong weeks. But there are players that you play in the right weeks constantly. So who was that guy for you? Who was the guy that every week you had exposure to him when he was good and you dodged him when he was bad? Who did you play just right? Which player did you play like a guitar all year? I think the two guys that come to mind for me, I think I caught the two good T.Y. Hilton games all year. I think I caught both of those games, which were very predictable performances. Those were telegraphed. I mean, weak secondaries at home. Uh, the other game was in, te- in Houston, uh, you know, dome situation, controlled environment where his speed can kind of play up. I think this week is another week for T.Y. Hilton to do that again in that same matchup against Houston. And then Melvin Gordon, I had a really good rapport with throughout the course of the year. Right. I seem to catch his weeks pretty well. It's pretty easy with Melvin Gordon. The only thing that caught me up there was a period early in the year where I think it was a toe injury. It was it was some injury that he had that they started managing a few reps in like weeks five, six, somewhere around there, like very early in the year. Those are the Austin Eckler games. Yeah, exactly. And then as soon as as soon as the competition fades away with Melvin Gordon and you just know that, hey, you're getting 25 touches and four or five of them are through the air. The floor is just incredible on Melvin Gordon. And in games where you feel very confident the Chargers are going to move the ball uh, up and down the field, his touchdown equity is just so strong because they use him in so many different ways around the, around the goal line. And it's not two touchdowns. And it's not zero touchdowns. It's always one. It's exactly one touchdown. I mean, if there's one thing you can set your watch by in the NFL, it's a touchdown from Melvin Gordon. 80 yards and a touchdown, 160 yards, one touchdown. Always the one singular touchdown from Melvin Gordon, and we love that. We love that in cash in particular. So in cash, who was your go-to play this season who just was always underpriced, who you were just like, okay, easily lock that guy in, always $500 less than you were assuming when you opened up the pricing every week? Who's that guy for you? I didn't have a guy the second half of the season, but the first half of the season it was Adam Thielen for me. It was every week, and I think one of the one of the joys that I have of working on projections and working with numbers is that it can remove a lot of biases from your decision making because you just you just put in you know what the expectation is and for Adam Thielen it was usually like 25% market share of targets and it was usually around nine and a half to ten and a half yards per target and every week I would sit there and I'd put in the expectations and then I'd push our projections live and every week we'd have Adam Thielen ahead of Stefan Diggs and I kept sitting there looking with my partner Mike Leone and we'd 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 go you know is this right i i mean stefan diggs keeps scoring touchdowns maybe maybe there's something in how they're utilizing him in the red zone then we'd look and we'd see red zone targets were pretty much the same so we just we just kept having adam thielen as basically you know 1200 to 1500 dollars cheaper than stefan diggs and we had him as the better player and unfortunately for me I didn't capture any of the upside Adam Thielen weeks because the first eight weeks of the season, it was every week was 80 yards, which is great. It's great for cash games. It's a great, you know, building block. 
but there was no 100-plus yards. We weren't hitting the bonus very often. There was no touchdowns, and that was maddening. And then his first touchdown came in a London game against the Browns, which I wasn't playing that slate. And then the very next slate, course, he, got, he, got, he got priced way up, and he went nuts against Washington, and I didn't have enough exposure then. So it was Adam Thielen for me and then Chris Hogan. Those were the two guys. Um, Hogan, before the injury, it was just very clear that he was assuming a big market share of opportunities, competitive with Brandon Cooks, and he was priced consistently way lower than Brandon Cooks. Um, and a bigger red zone role as well on a team that was consistently going to score touchdowns. The automatic value play for me was Devin Funches in the absence of Calvin Benjamin. That market correction was slower than it should have been, and that was just an easy play in all formats, right? He was a cash play and a GPP play. I love those types of receivers where you see the huge influx of target share that you can project. I think he would have gotten it regardless, but when you trade Kelvin Benjamin, it makes our job so much easier, right? It's like, okay, he needs to fill part of that void. Sure. No Greg Olson. I mean, yeah. what, what are we doing? The computer was like every time like it has to be Devin Funches easily. So that makes it easy. And then, oh, he also has ability. Oh, he's 23 years old. Oh, he has a 90th percentile height adjusted speed score. And they use him a lot in the red zone. Oh, wow. So this guy also has great upside. We can play him in all formats. So that was my easy go-to DFS play where we he was just in our lineups every week. Lock it in, Devin Funches. And to our detriment, despite the injury. So one of my failings this year has been a lack of appreciation for how injuries can throttle performances. We saw that with Stephon Diggs, how... He and Thielen were 1A and 1B, and then post-injury, it was very clear that Thielen was the 1 and Diggs was the 2. There was no 1A and 1B anymore. It was very clear 1-2. Now, lately, he's been getting healthier, but it's no surprise that the groin injury takes over a month to fully heal, and he was operating at less than 100%. When you see that Q tag next to wide receivers, you need to pay attention. And mostly, I pay attention to the lower body injuries. But with Chris Hogan, last five weeks when he's played, he hasn't been at all productive. Shoulder injury. Devin Funchess has been playing through a shoulder injury lately and underperforming. So it's not just the lower body injuries. Shoulder injuries, too, can impact how well wide receivers play. It impacts their ability to push off. It impacts their ability to raise their arms up and catch, to catch the ball in contested situations in particular. So it makes sense to me that an injury to a wide receiver, because they're such a well-oiled machine anyway, when you think of a Julio Jones, for example, when the toe isn't right, that contributes to his lackluster performances because these are the Ferraris of the football field. And when the tires aren't right or the engines, pistons are not firing properly, you're not going to get the performance you're looking for from those players. So I think in the future, I am going to be more quick to throttle those players that show up with the cues and not try to be a doctor and go, oh, well, that's just a shoulder injury. That doesn't affect his explosiveness. Ew! Whoa! He's questionable, okay? He's fucking questionable. He's questionable. Just understand that he's questionable and stop playing your guy just because he's your guy. Realize he's hurt. Maybe give him a couple weeks to prove that he can play at a high level through this injury and not be an asshole. So that was my big takeaway from this season. But up until that point, yeah, Devin Funchess was a lock for a huge target share and sneaky upside every week. 
Now, one player, not in the NFL, that doesn't have any sneaky upside, his upside's already baked in. In fact, there's so much assumed upside with this player that he can only ever be overrated. I mean, I ask people this question, do you think Russell Westbrook is overrated? And they think and they ponder. And it's like, no, this is this is the clearest, this is the this is the easiest question you'll ever get in sports. Of course he's overrated. He's viewed with such prestige that he could never live up to. And it goes now way beyond that. Now you have to start asking real questions about whether this guy is a detriment to a team if he's playing a full complement of 40 minutes. I mean, is it possible? Can you at least admit that it's worth exploring whether Russell Westbrook is better off in a complementary role on a basketball team? So he is for sure overrated because people love their counting stats. People love, 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 love. Triple double, triple double, oh triple double, triple double, triple double, triple double, triple double, triple double, oh triple double, oh triple double, oh did you see all those triple doubles? Oh triple double, oh almost had a triple double, had a triple double. It's the easiest way for casual people to compare other players. It's the easiest way for them to do so. And efficiency metrics are the hardest way for a lot of people to do so. They're becoming more popular. And for the intense fan, for the really passionate fans, they've become something to grasp onto. And there is a challenge in evaluating really high usage players with lower efficiency because as usage goes up, generally efficiency goes down. So there's some trade-off there. Um, I think what we've seen from Russ this season with the Thunder... Not with LeBron, though. No, no, not with LeBron. (laughs) Right? Not with LeBron, not with Giannis either. Giannis keeps improving every year his efficiency, which is absurd with higher usage. Those guys are just unbelievable, utter freaks. The cheat codes of the NBA. But Russ is is not that guy. And Russ is a very good player, but he's not a great player. And I think that's, that's the thing that a lot of people are not comfortable saying. And when you've surrounded Russ with a lot of above-average role rotation players, you get a fringe playoff team. And that's the sign of a very good player. He has very rarely been surrounded by bad players because Sam Presti and the Oklahoma City Thunder do a very good job at evaluating fringe NBA kind of of back-of-the-rotation guys. And a lot of the guys that he's he's paired with are very undervalued. Like Steven Adams is one of the more underrated players in the entire league, And he is totally willing to cede a lot of the counting stats to Russ in terms of letting Russ grab rebounds and different things like that. Um, In terms of whether he's an actual detriment. Can we just talk about the rebounding for a second? Yes. It's getting cheesy at this point, is it not? (laughs) How he sneaks in under his own players and steals rebounds. Admit that it's lame. It's lame. (laughs) He's such a stat chaser that it's embarrassing to watch. It was really lame last year. It was really, I mean, it was egregious last year when he was going for the averaging of the triple-double. This year, Carmelo's fighting him a little bit more for some of those rebounds. They're yelling at him on the court. So it's kind of it's kind of fun to watch. They're telling him to fuck off. <laughs> it's, it's kind of fun to watch. It is fun to watch. Someone's finally standing up to him and saying, get the fuck out of here, Mr. Box Score. What does he do? Does he just, I feel like he prints out his box scores. He has like an altar where he puts his box scores with candles every night and it worships his own fucking counting stats, this guy. I will say this about Russ, because as a Chicago sports fan, he and Derek Rose were on the same career trajectory and both had knee injuries early in their career. And Derek Rose's career went 
in a totally different direction than Russell Westbrook's career. So his body to be able to hold up the amount of usage that he puts on those knees and the amount of explosive and athleticism. And he's, you know, he's 29 years old now. I thought he is a player that would not age very gracefully at all. And that still might be the case when he gets into his thirties because he relies so much on athleticism, but the, 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 the ability for his body to hold up what early in his career had a couple of different knee injuries and I think one was the exact same first knee injury that Derrick Rose had before he tore the ACL. It was like a patellar tendon issue. Um, and he's come back and been an explosive guy, which as a Bulls fan makes me really sad because what could have been with Derrick Rose's career. But right. um, it's been pretty remarkable for Russ. But, yeah, he's super overrated from a casual fan standpoint. Um, last year, in my opinion, James Harden was the MVP. Um, and Kawhi Leonard was next in line. Kawhi, the only the only reason Kawhi wasn't the MVP was because he played way less minutes than Harden last year. Um, Harden was on the floor a ton, but Westbrook's uh, overall counting contributions are definitely overrated by the public. Then Kawhi Leonard is equally underrated. Mm-hmm. On a permanent basis, Kawhi Leonard's one of, if not the best player in the league. Of course, that's all with the exception of LeBron James. <laughs> you have LeBron James over here, everyone else. But yes, after LeBron James, I'd love to have Kawhi Leonard how do you explain what happened with Victor Oladipo? Because that's an indictment of Russell Westbrook. Yeah, that so that's a huge indictment on on Russ. I think that's also a huge credit to Oladipo. Some of this the work he did in the offseason to reshape his body. And I know, you know, he posted, I think it was on Instagram or whatever, pics during the offseason of all these changes he had been making to his body. And, you know, when you see it at first, you're like, yeah, yeah, every every athlete does this in the offseason. And that dude took it really, really seriously. And I still think a lot of the leaps he's taken are a little bit unsustainable. I don't think he's now Stephen Curry from three, which is what he's basically shot like this year. Uh, But credit to Oladipo. And I was really, really wrong on that Paul George trade. Like I immediately thought, you know what? Oklahoma City did an unbelievable job here. They got out from Oladipo's contract, which is going to look like a good contract now. I thought it was like a neutral or slightly below average contract at first. They got a shot to retain their star long term in terms of Russell Westbrook, because I think what they were staring at at the end of the season, if they didn't make a big push, was potentially losing Westbrook. And then you're in a different level as a franchise in terms of uh, public appeal and notoriety and whatnot. And I thought they gave themselves a chance at that. And I still think the Thunder will eventually right the ship and be like a top four or five team in the West. They'll get there because they're yeah. so talented defensively. And Paul George is such a good player. And the West is not as deep as it used to be. It's not. And injuries have really impacted that this year a lot. But I think Oladipo and Sabonis is a really good player too. Who they got in that deal. He looks like <laughs> yes. he looks like a really, really exciting young player. Um, Indy did a much better job than I think than certainly I gave them credit for initially, and I think most of uh, NBA Twitter gave them credit for initially. Imagine the Thunder with James Harden and Kevin Durant, because if they choose to trade Russell Westbrook to Houston instead of James Harden, then I think Kevin Durant stays because I think Kevin Durant wanted to get away from the usage monster that is Russell Westbrook. I mean, if you're a star like Kevin Durant, you don't want to play next to that guy. Even if he is efficient, I don't think you want to play next to a guy like that who's giving you the ball with eight seconds to go on the shot clock. It's just not fun to play with that guy. 
And so it makes perfect sense that he would leave. And none of this gets talked about. None of this gets talked about. I know that they you know, had beef after, but I think that's manufactured. I think that neither one of those players really wanted to play together. I think Russell Westbrook, at the time of his life, having the team to himself, and I think that Kevin Durant was finally the focal point in a way he could never be with Russell Westbrook. So it was good for everybody. It was good for all parties. I just wish... We had the opportunity to see a hardened Durant team with that nucleus. That would be exciting. It would have been fun with all the defensive players that they've been able to surround. And like Steven Adams is a perfect fit for all the pick and roll stuff. And to be able to spread the floor with Kevin Durant as your spread secondary initiator, that would have been a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, because Harden gives the ball up much more quickly in the possession and would just make it a lot easier to just run the offense fluidly. It would be great, but oh well. We talked earlier about, is this player a good cash game play? Is this player a good GPP play? And I was looking back at some mistakes I made along the way. And one regret I have is that I played a lot of Larry Fitzgerald every week in cash because I thought that was just one of the obvious value plays after an Adam Thielen and a Devin Funches. But I was always hesitant to play Larry Fitzgerald in GPPs. I'd always find a way to swap him out for a wide receiver that I perceived as having more upside. And you can see this, and you can see this every week on the playerprofiler.com lineup genius. Playerprofiler.com forward slash optimal dash lineup. Why was I doing that? It's not smart. Larry Fitzgerald also a GPP play. And of course, one of the best cash plays in the NFL. I mean, what am I doing? I think you're not alone on this one. I think a lot of people have made this mistake throughout the course of the year, and I'm certainly guilty of it as well. And I think there's a couple factors that go into play. One, I think in general, we're all a little bit, if you, if you do this long enough, you become a little bit of an ageist just because you've been burnt by players' careers deteriorating faster than you expected when they get to a certain level and a certain age. Got to get Andre Johnson on the Colts. Oof. Yeah. Got to get him La- in the third round. Larry Fitzgerald has defied most of those aging curves by continuing to play well into his mid thirties. And that is a testament to how much work Larry Fitzgerald puts in, in the off season to keep his body in pristine condition. The upside part of the question I think is very interesting because I think the way we've perceived upside in the past needs to be adjusted for overall landscape of the league. And I credit Ben Gretsch's preseason article on Rotoviz talking about some trends and he wasn't coming to conclusions early in early in the offseason. He was just noting, hey, this is these are things that are happening in the league. And one of the things he noted in that article was that there are more three and four wide receiver sets than we have ever seen before. And because there are more options on the field to potentially spread the ball around too, it limits some of the sky-high market shares that you can see from wide receiver ones and wide receiver twos. And it was this interesting thought that I did not contextualize properly during the course of the season because what that means is not only does that spread out some of the consistency of wide receiver ones, but it also lowers the upside of the wide receiver position as the whole, as there's more competition for targets. So instead of seeing games that are routinely you know, 150 yards or two touchdown games in the NFL from wide receivers, we rarely see those anymore. And Larry Fitzgerald is rarely going to put up a 150-yard game or a 200-yard game. But you know what? No one is anymore. Very few of those games are happening. So the ceiling on the position has been lowered as a whole, and Larry Fitzgerald's ceiling hasn't moved. 
And that has made him a better GPP play relative to the field this year simply because the bar was lowered. And it's a bar he can hit more consistently through volume as opposed to big plays. And that's the takeaway that I was not quick enough to contextualize or correct for during the course of the season. And frankly, you know, it's going to be a lost cause because I can't imagine. I mean, Larry Fitzgerald might not even come back next year. He's already kind of talked about, you know, the potential of retiring and kind of walking away. But it's something to remember in the future that, hey, no longer do you need in GPPs your wide receivers to go for like 150 or two touchdowns. 101 is enough. And a lot of players have that upside on a weekly basis. So sometimes you throw out the baby with the bathwater when you think about upside because the position as a whole has lost a lot of upside to it. How many wide receivers scored two touchdowns in a game this year? (laughs) The multi-touchdown wide receiver game no longer exists. It's extinct. It's like a white tiger. You might have missed that, but you've always done a great job focusing on the targets we talk about this on the show chasing the targets that's been a mantra of yours for a while chase the targets chase the targets chase the targets have you ever witnessed a better case for focusing on targets over efficiency than deandre hopkins in the second half with tom savage deandre hopkins is his whole career is writing this book for me i don't even need to i don't even need to have the argument anymore it's just very clear Volume greater than efficiency. Always volume greater than efficiency. Volume is more projectable than efficiency, and it is more important in terms of fantasy scoring than efficiency. And what you've seen from DeAndre Hopkins is wild fluctuations in efficiency during his career because of the different level of competence of the quarterbacks that he's played with. And the only time the efficiency has really popped has been basically, you know, he had a a pretty good year with Brock, and then he had, you know, the few games with Deshaun Watson that we saw a little bit of efficiency pop. But the targets have always been there for him. And so he's a guy that in the last few weeks, if you were downgrading him solely based on quarterback play, you were probably going too far. Because essentially what happens that gets made up for the lack of efficiency is the weaker the quarterback tends to hone in even more on the best wide receiver because they know they have fewer routes to success. They know I'm not going to be able to throw Will Fuller open, but I can throw a ball and DeAndre Hopkins has a three and a half foot catch radius in all directions that he can bail me out. I'm going to throw to that guy. And what makes Deshaun Watson Deshaun Watson is his ability to go through his read progressions quickly. So that's what gets lost in the whole thing about bad quarterback play is that there's there's a tipping point, right, where the quarterback is so bad that the whole offense systematically just shuts down. And that's a risk. That's always going to be a risk. But there are some unique talents, and DeAndre Hopkins seems to be one of them, that can overcome all of that. And especially if they get the volume that they do, the Texans tend to play fast, which is another thing that aids his volume in terms of they run a lot of plays. Um, so DeAndre Hopkins, you know, as the price kind of came down in the last few weeks, it was time to, to shove the chips in the middle on DeAndre Hopkins. Right. The DFS platforms overemphasized the QB downgrade. You saw them just slash the price on DeAndre Hopkins immediately. It came down 1500 So you're looking at, wait, where's DeAndre Hopkins? I'm looking at him in that upper tier. He's not even up there anymore. They slashed it. He was down there with some wide receiver twos. I'm like, well, what are we doing here? <laughs> but again... Like with Larry Fitzgerald, because of the quarterback play, I was hesitant to make him a GPP option 
thought, oh, well, we know we can bank on the volume regardless. That makes him a cash play. Uh, this could have a catastrophic impact on the offense. The touchdown upside has to go down, maybe significantly. Therefore, not so excited about DeAndre Hopkins in GPPs. And for the reasons you outlined why Larry Fitzgerald was actually a good GPP play all along this season, so was DeAndre Hopkins. I mean, we saw it last week. Last week, just last week, only three receivers crested 20 points. One of them was Jakeem Grant, who's the smallest receiver since Andrew Hawkins. I mean, this is unbelievable. Three receivers cresting 20 points. One of them, Julio Jones, didn't score a touchdown. This is the new NFL that we're living in. 880 and one is good enough in GPPs. 880 and one is good enough. So looking forward to 2018, give me three bold predictions. Rapid fire, bold predictions. Drew Dinkmeyer, 2018, go. A Browns wide receiver is the top 20 fantasy wide receiver next season. Travis Kelsey outscores all the wide receivers next season. Wait, what? Travis Kelsey outscores every wide receiver next season. Oh, that's bold. (laughs) Well, that's your second bold (laughs) prediction. Now I can't wait to hear the third. If that's your second, that Travis Kelsey is going to be the top scoring receiver. Oh, I can't wait to hear the third. I'm going to unzip my shirt. Here you go. (laughs) Hit me. Marcus Mariota is the top five quarterback next season. Yes! Yes! That's it! <laughs> That's right! I agree with that! I think Marcus Mariota is going to outscore Deshaun Watson next year. And everyone is just going to have to eat it! You're <laughs> going to have to eat it! Yes, thank you. you! We didn't talk about this! Yes, you did respond to my show sheet, but I did not read your response to this. This was... Wow! Yes! Yes, yes, yes. So we talked about... This RB renaissance and the conflict. So we talked about the confluence of the RB renaissance with the spread offense and how it's enhancing the value of running backs and diminishing the value of wide receivers. So with these two forces at work, how does this influence redraft and DFS tactics in 2018? What do you think the landscape will look like next year? So I think the DFS part is pretty easy because we've seen this for two years now. Last year, it was Le'Veon Bell and David Johnson and the term Team Jam in started to become popular around the DFS industry, which was basically just force these two guys that cost a lot into your roster and make everything else around them work. Like jam them in. Yeah. Take these two running backs and literally jam them in. Jam them in. Jam them in. Team jam them in. Team jam them in. That's what it was last season. And the reason it was was not only because those two had such a great combination of floor and ceiling that was different than everybody else at their position, but it was also that it took a while for the DFS sites to realize how aggressive they should be pricing these players. These players should, in reality, be closer to 10, 11K. 11K, right? Yeah, they were being priced at 8 or 9. That's a huge, huge value. These two players uh, two years ago were often the best players in our entire value uh, columns on our projections. This year, it's been Le'Veon Bell pretty much every week and Todd Gurley. Those guys, like every week, are top values in our projections. 
And it's because they, they have a hard time pricing them aggressively enough because if you price them in the tens, people don't play them. And then the ownership comes down because part of the pricing algorithms include ownership. So then the price kind of comes back down. So the, the key for DFS the last few years has been instead of paying eight or nine K for a wide receiver, pay that for one of these running backs that has all of the workload and all of the upside um, from kind of these spread systems and gaining more of the market share of targets. And I think that will continue to be the case as long as DFS sites are pricing top tier wide receivers in the same category as top tier running backs. In a redraft, I think, you know, the top of the, the first round will continue to just sway with the tide. Whatever worked last year is what people are going to gravitate towards. But I think the thing that you can kind of rely on is that, look, the injury rates at the running back position are always going to be higher than at the wide receiver position. And that's been a big part of the case for, you know, the zero running back strategy. And that will still hold. But the advantage that the dominate, dominating running backs have over the rest of the field will be so substantial that if you catch them in the right injury-free season, they are worthy of that high first-round pick. And I think for the most part, we saw a little bit more efficiency with this in drafts this season. I think the challenge is when you try to fit square pegs into round holes in the, in the two through five rounds with running backs, that are not those guys when they're they're Jordan Howards or um, I'm, Jay Ajayi's Jay Ajayi's those guys that have no Lamar Miller have no chance no chance you need to know the talent level of the player exactly you can't be drafting the CJ Anderson prototype in the second round that's not how you do it we talk about getting starting running back and then going zero RB after that yep and for a lot of teams because. You might not have had a top three pick. It was Melvin Gordon. And a lot of people ended up being really happy with their rosters featuring Melvin Gordon and productive wide receivers. It's just in a lot of leagues, those receivers weren't productive enough. They just weren't. The early round wide receivers were not productive. I think that will course correct next year. We'll see the early round wide receivers be more productive. That'll be the way to play it is get your running back in round one and then hammer down the wide receiver throttle for the next three or four picks at least. And the interesting thing will be to see which wide receivers fall out of the first round because the necessary consequence of this zeal to get a running back in the first round to get your Todd Gurley anchor RB1 locked in, we could see Odell Beckham fall out of the first round. That could happen. I mean, that's real because he's a wide receiver. He's a wide receiver. And we go and you look at the two cohorts next to each other, running back versus wide receiver. We talked about this. The upside just isn't there. And he won't have a quarterback. He's coming back from injury. He won't have a quarterback. I can see the arguments already, already being written why Odell Beckham Jr., not a first-round pick. Oh, I can see it entirely. Um, I think people will for sure take Julio Jones over Odell Beckham next year. And so, and Julio is going to start to slide more towards the back end of the first round as well. Big mistake. Big mistake. That that narrative on the quarterback thing is going to be hilarious because Odell hasn't had a quarterback. That's right. Oh, that's right. I would rather have Keenan Allen than Julio Jones. Yeah. I mean, did you see this Keenan Allen outburst? Because he played some incredibly difficult secondaries early in the season and then the schedule softened. Did you see that coming? So it was it was easy to see that the Chargers offense on the whole was going to be a lot more efficient in the in this when the schedule got softened. They just have so much talent at the position. I think what I didn't see enough of and I played a lot of Keenan Allen this year. A lot of my most successful weeks were heavily 
influenced by Keenan Allen. But right. what I kept assuming there would be more of was Hunter Henry. And that assumption never came to fruition because it was just Keenan Allen dominating target share. And I thought they would start to mix Hunter Henry up to a 16 to 18% market share role. They kept him around 10 to 12, which is just too inconsistent to deliver value. But he is a, a mismatch that they should be exploiting more frequently, in my own opinion. Yes. And that that's a situation that I think will take a little bit of the luster away from Keenan Allen. But the thing that they figured out more than anything is they started to figure out, hey, we just can't call run plays on first and de- first and 10 every time out there and let Melvin Gordon get his two yards. Melvin Gordon's a very good back, but that's not the way to use him. And so they started to in- implement more kind of first down, early early down play calling that was play action induced or uh, pass game heavy to kind of work Keenan Allen's ability to exploit the middle of the field. And that's what really opened up the offense. Because once they started doing that, then their play calling got less predictable. Melvin Gordon started breaking off a few big runs here and there when he was able to get outside. And they were able to use the play action to stretch the field with Tyrell Williams and open up the middle of the field for Keenan Allen and Hunter Henry. It's a very dangerous offense. A lot of really good weapons. Love this offense. I assume they will continue to bolster some of the weapons specifically on the offensive line because that's the one area that they've struggled with injuries the last few years. And they've really shored up the defense through the draft the last few years. So I imagine that they're going to have more focus and attention on the offensive side of the ball in the draft this season. The Chargers are coming and next year in drafts. I can imagine drafting David Johnson and then following that up with Keenan Allen. Imagine going David Johnson, Keenan Allen in the draft. Imagine going Alvin Kamara, Odell Beckham. Yeah. Right? Kamara Beckham, Johnson Allen, and a guy I'm going to be drafting next year because I think there'll be a narrative around his sophomore slump, right? Antonio Brown will be back. Maybe Juju Smith-Schuster won't command the target share he needs to to justify the round in which he's drafted, but I don't care. I can tell you one of the players that I will have on a lot of fantasy teams next year will be Juju Smith-Schuster. I mean, this guy is good. I don't care. In fact, I hope... Ben Roethlisberger retires to even more strongly chase everyone away. Get away from Juju Smith-Schuster. Just forget about him, right? He's not the number one wide receiver. The quarterback may be in flux. Forget about Juju Smith-Schuster. You don't want any part of him. Don't draft him. Let me have him all. Give me it all. Give it all to me. I want all the Juju. He is is the age equivalent of playing his junior season in college right now. It's absurd how successful he's been. And obviously his situation is as good as it can be. I mean, you've got Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell taking all the attention in the world. But we even saw last week without Antonio Brown on the field, he he was he was able to command uh, uh, attention and he was still able to produce. He's the man. This is what we all that are Corey Coleman enthusiasts envision from Corey Coleman. The difference is their entire offense is just totally systemically a, a disaster. And Corey Coleman can't succeed unless you have a, a certain baseline level of competency at the quarterback position that they do not have this year. But Juju is a guy that I immediately grabbed in my keeper leagues, immediately yes. picked up. Uh, he will be a staple of my teams for years and years and years because you do not get this kind of production at the NFL level at this age. We like Devin Funches, but it took Devin Funches two full seasons to develop before he finally broke out in year three. Juju Smith-Schuster just turned 21. He just turned 21. And he's been incredibly productive, 12.5 fantasy points per game. He's top 24, so he's already a WR1. This is so impressive. 
age-adjusted college dominance is what you need to focus on. You show it not only with Juju Smith-Schuster, but Keelan Cole in Jacksonville as well. Just because a player underwhelms in his final season, there needs to be a renewed de-emphasis on the final season. It's not the red flag that it's waved around to be. And that's why on our Dominator ratings, for example, we give you credit if your final season in college was not your best season. Your best college season, regardless of whether or not it's your final season or not, that's what illuminates your upside at the next level. That. Follow the best season, not the final season. It should be a green flag, if anything, because you're usually getting value on that discount, whether it's a team drafting in the NFL or whether it's you know a fantasy player drafting. You're usually getting some sort of hidden discount in the value because people are weighting the recency bias of what happened most frequently. And that's another reason that a guy like Corey Davis is probably going to be a huge value next year in drafts because an, another you. young dominator at the college level this season kind of just a lost season with the hamstring issues early in the season finally kind of came forward last week and put together that Corey Davis game we've been expecting the offense has been a disaster in terms of creativity I expect them to correct a lot of that in the offseason which is why I'm so high on Mariota going into next season as, as a guy and there's a lot of young dynamic talent on that offense and you get the benefit of just playing in a division that, you know, outside of Jacksonville doesn't have a lot of defensive talent on it. I know Houston's been ravaged with injuries this year, but they're an older defense on the whole that a lot of their players are kind of in decline and injury can be expected when you get older defenses on the whole. Uh, Indianapolis, they they have a long way to go with their defense. You're going to get four favorable matchups a year for this Titans offense. And Corey Davis is that kind of guy for me with Juju Smith-Schuster uh, next year where these young dominators are guys to pay attention to in, in drafts. How did those NFC East receivers do this year? <laughs> How did they do? Why did we tell you to fade the NFC East wide receivers in August? Why, why, why? The schedule. The schedule, the schedule, the schedule. All they had were games scheduled against above-average secondaries. All they had were games scheduled where they were matched up with elite cornerback talent. Week after week after week after week, you're crossing against the NFC West. You're crossing against the AFC West. Why not chase the wide receivers that have annual friendly schedules built in. It's baked into the bread of the AFC South. You're going to get friendly matchups for half the season. Yes, Corey Davis. I mean, I can envision a roster next year where I'm drafting you know, David Johnson and Keenan Allen and Juju Smith-Schuster and Corey Davis and Amari Cooper leveraging recency bias to stockpile talents at value next year I cannot wait. I'm already drafting my teams in 2018. I'm already doing the thought exercise, but let's focus on week 17. We have Drew Dinkmeyer here. It's been an hour and a half, and we've yet to talk <laughs> about this slate at all. <laughs> yes! I love it! I love it! Basketball! <laughs> Dynasty! Just agitating the audience that wants their answers, wants the plays of the week. Yes, understood. We will give you some plays of the week. Which players are at risk for not playing enough snaps in week 17? Because that's the hardest thing to project. When are these players going to leave the game? Are they going to play a quarter? Are they going to play a half? What do you do with these players? And how many of them are there this week? There's a lot. There's a lot of teams that have very little to play for this week. There's only one team that's really incentivized to lose, and that's the Giants, uh, because they could wrap up the number two pick. 
Uh, I don't think it has a huge impact from a DFS perspective because you probably weren't playing many Giants anyway. But Kansas City, Dallas, the Rams, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh are the teams that are the most concerning right now. Kansas City has already said that they intend to uh, start Patrick Mahomes. That's a signal right there. Hey, if we're starting Patrick Mahomes, we're probably not going to play Kareem Hunt. We're probably not going to play Tyreek Hill. We're probably not going to play Travis Kelsey very much. The Rams have openly stated they're not going to play any of their starters, so you can just cross them off. Dallas has said that they're going to share time with Cooper Rush and Dak Prescott. They're both going to play this week. That's a situation. That's a signal right there. Ezekiel Elliott's probably not going to be on the field the whole game. Uh, move on from Dallas, and then Pittsburgh is the one that they said they're going to come down to kind of a final decision, and that's a tricky one because it is a good matchup with Cleveland. They do have a high implied total. Pittsburgh only benefits from a win and New England losing. That's the only situation that they can benefit from. And New England is almost 17 point favorites against the Jets. So oh I think this is a situation where Pittsburgh, at most, you're probably getting a half or three quarters from their guys because they'll look up at the scoreboard. They'll see that the Patriots are up two touchdowns in the second half and they'll say, hey, let's pull the pull the reins back here on these guys. So I think those are teams to all kind of shy away from in terms of playoff teams that have plenty to play for. You know, the Patriots, if they're up two touchdowns in the fourth quarter, they're probably pulling some guys out, but they're going to play to get up those two touchdowns because they want to lock up home field advantage. Atlanta, Atlanta, Carolina, that has a lot of playoff implications, both in terms of Atlanta making the playoffs, but also in terms of seeding. Carolina can get as high as the number two seed. Uh, The Chargers are, are a team that you can count on this week. They have to win and need a little bit of help to get in. Jacksonville is the team that has nothing to play for, but they say they're playing for for everything this week. They say they're playing their normal way. Um, it's kind of this, you know, Bill Parcells, Tom Coughlin coaching tree that they've had these decisions in the past where they just play their guys through the season and grind them down. And so you can expect Jacksonville and Tennessee to also play their guys. And then the Saints have uh, have playing have seeding upside as well, trying to win their division. So there are a, a good number of teams that have plenty to play for. More of those teams are in the uh, uh, in the NFC in terms of seeding position. Right. And then in terms of trying to get into the playoffs, more of those teams are in the AFC. So we have one team that has already come out publicly and stated flatly, we're benching our starters, they're not playing a second. And that's the Rams. Again, no surprise, a contemporary coach, a well-managed organization has perspective and they're transparent. They're not doing the bullshit gamesmanship that we get so often in the NFL where you don't get any advantage from the gamesmanship. You just do the gamesmanship to be an asshole because you're wired to be an asshole because you were born into this world as an asshole and then you were predisposed to become an asshole coach and just fuck with everyone from your players to your fans to fantasy gamers, you fucking assholes. So thank you, Rams. Is there something we can do to leverage this with Los Angeles? Is this a Josh Reynolds game? It's really tricky. And obviously the matchup from the Rams perspective, you know, San Francisco is a limited talent defensively. They have played better the last few weeks, but they have limited talent, especially in the secondary. I think you'll probably Will see Cooper Cup even allow himself to. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's played every game at every level of football he's had access to for his entire career. He gives 110% in every game, even meaningless games at Eastern Washington. Is he going to allow the coaches to bench him? Too much heart. Is he going to switch jerseys with someone else on the team just to sneak in there? Will he steal Tavon Austin's jersey? <laughs> An attempt to play slot as Tavon Austin. Too much grit. Yeah. 
He cares too much. He cares too much. But yeah, I, I think, you know, these guys are going to be periphery plays that you can take some shots on in tournaments, like a Josh Reynolds, like a Malcolm Brown, who will probably get the bulk of the work. Yeah, now we're talking. His price is a punt play. I don't think if you're playing cash games, these are these are guys you're considering. There, there's just too much systemic risk. No Malcolm Brown in cash. Why? I don't I don't think so. It, it'll ultimately depend on I think there'll be enough value to make it work this week. Yeah. Right. If you need a value piece, he's going to be among the best. So he is the he is the 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 punt play running back has more equity than a punt play wide receiver. So Malcolm Brown possibly in cash. It kind of depends on how builds end up shaking out. Josh Reynolds, those wide receivers, I'm only playing in tournaments. I think the thing is, though, there aren't enough expensive players this week to justify a punt play. Exactly. If there were more expensive players I were chasing, sure. But we have LaShawn McCoy, Mark Ingram, Alvin Kamara at running back. That's it, right? That's it. Maybe maybe Deion Lewis, if you get the, the Pats situation... But he's not necessarily that expensive this week. No, exactly. That's the thing. His so, price corrected, but his price yeah. isn't correct enough where you need a punt play to afford this basket of running backs yep. this week. That This isn't the week for a punt play. So that's why in a cash game scenario, it would never really make sense for a Malcolm Brown to leak into your roster in that case. You probably don't need it, but there might be scenarios like if you're paying for Gronk and then you're paying at other running back positions, which that makes more sense. Like I'd rather punt with Malcolm Brown than punt with a tight end this week. So it kind of just comes down to like how the the pricing shakes out. But there's a lot of good mid-tier value on this slate. Um, Jamal Williams, another guy with Aaron Jones out. We saw monstrous workloads. Uh, Detroit's been a team that has struggled mightily against the run in recent weeks. My boy Gio Bernard ate them up last week. Um, I think he's another guy that's underpriced. There's just a lot of value at the running back position this week. Gio Bernard's underpriced as well this week because it looks like Joe Mixon's not going to play again. If you're the Bengals, how the hell would you even consider playing Joe Mixon who has a concussion and an ankle injury in a meaningless game? Uh, No idea. But they also played Jeremy Hill during the course of the season and gave him significant snaps. So they clearly don't have a great handle on forecasting. I mean, what are you doing? That entire backfield should have been Joe Mixon and Gio Bernard all season long with Joe Mixon handling the early down work and Gio Bernard being the change of pace. It was very, it it was an easy, easy call. Jeremy Hill had no place in that backfield and they just kind of, they were team jam them in with the wrong running backs, jamming in Jeremy Hill. Get out of here. So there's a lot of dynamics in play. I mean, should casual DFS players just avoid week 17? I mean, be honest. I actually think in a lot of ways, if you're so if you're casual in the sense that like you're not even paying attention to who's who's, you know, playing their players. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of mistakes that you can make. But if you know, hey, the Rams aren't playing their guys this week, if you know that as a baseline, I actually think this slate in some ways can be considered better for casual players because it's almost like, you know, the Thanksgiving Day slate or, you know, a primetime slate where the pool of players gets condensed so much because you can just toss out some of these teams. Like, you can toss out Dallas. Yes. Toss out Philadelphia, although we haven't gotten clarity there yet. You probably can toss them out. You can toss out the Rams for the most part. You can toss out the Chiefs for the most part. And you close down the number of teams that you're actually rostering players from, teams that are good offenses on the whole, are playing for something down the stretch, and just focus on those. I think it actually, in some ways, if you have at least a baseline knowledge of which teams to focus on, I think it helps 
make the decisions a little bit easier because it's a little bit of a smaller player pool that you're working with. So we talked about not taking chances on the running back position in cash. Make sure you're going to be rostering a running back that's going to get you know 60% plus opportunity share. But you can roster cheap quarterbacks in cash. So who is that this week? Would, would you go all the way down to, say, a Jacoby Brissett? I think he's certainly in play. Um, we, we've seen the Texans defense just really limp to the finish line here. We know the Colts have no reason to do anything differently than what they've done. I mean, they've, they've talked about playing to try to win games, um, for their head coach the last few weeks for Chuck Pagano in terms of trying to like save his job and stuff. So I think Brissett's workload is very clear. Um, I think there are other opportunities. There's, you know, Kirk Cousins against a Giants team that has been banged up the last few weeks. There's Matthew Stafford. Whoa, hold on. Of all the players, who's the most incentivized to play well in week 17? The guy who wants to get paid. Who stands to benefit the most from an exceptional week 17 performance? Kirk Cousins playing for a contract against the Giants, right? Also, he lost his 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 suitor when when the when the 49ers got Jimmy Garoppolo, he lost, you know, the Kyle Shanahan connection. Now now he's got to go, you know, audition for everybody, not just for one coach. Now he's auditioning for John Elway. <laughs> so, yeah, those, that's going to work out real well. in Denver. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, talk about a team that is teed up to lose a lot of games for a lot of years. The Denver Broncos in a competitive division with Kansas City and San Diego and Oakland all rising. Oh, <laughs> Denver declining. Does it does it hurt your team if you don't hit on a draft pick for four years? Does that hurt? It might help if you're good <laughs> at player evaluation. That tends to help in building a quality franchise. Any other players with key contract bonuses to be made aware of other than the obvious and Kirk Cousins? Yeah, so Gronk has a playing time bonus. Does he really? Yeah, like he has to play like 90% of the snaps. I don't think he has a realistic shot at getting there, so I don't think it really impacts things. Um, huh. Adam Thielen is the one that is most notable. He needs five more catches for another mill. So five Ooh. catches and he gets a million dollars in bonus money. Uh, I would think that Adam Thielen would be pretty motivated to grab those five balls against the Bears on Sunday. absolutely love that nugget that's one of the nuggets of the year i love that of course i did ask the question it's also a great question i can't not boomerang a compliment like that back to myself at least i'm going to do that you know it i mean everyone knows. gotta do it so which wide receiver offers the most upside for the price thinking gpp wide receivers here drew i'm gonna try to go three for three with ty hilton this year and i yes. think i think it's just another great spot the price is down a little bit it's a slate where as we talked about there's not a lot of expensive targets that you're particularly excited about uh i would say especially at the wide receiver position you know you've got you've got hopkins and julio jones that are just getting a little bit pricey to the point that you know, they, they obviously have the upside to be able to pay it off in tournaments, but it requires a little bit more. T.Y. Hilton at 5,900 on DraftKings is just a really, really solid. Uh, T.Y. Tilton. That's what he's been for many people this year, but I have been on the right side of T.Y. Hilton. So he has been he has been a, a, a five star hotel investment for me. That's right. Yes. Hilton Brissett stack. Brissett Hilton Hilton Brissett stack those Colts this week. 
So we talked about tight end. So many people have been buried by their tight end choices in DFS. It's been a nightmare because the choices are so bad at the lower price levels. Paying up for tight ends has made sense this year. Would you agree? Yeah. So it's hard because on DraftKings, the tight end is priced so cheaply relative to the other positions that sometimes there's a lot of value in just taking that salary relief. But in terms of consistent GPP winning lineups, it's more likely been paying up at tight end than paying down at tight end because there hasn't been a lot of upside generated. Now, last week there was with Antonio Gates, who was resurrected from the dead for 2,500 and you know scored a touchdown and went for 70 yards. And Greg Olson the week prior. Right. So there were clear GPP plays in proven commodities that were teed up to command a high target share. Greg Olson, Antonio Gates. But before that, prior to the last couple of weeks, you get more upside with, with one of those elite tight ends in GPPs. And they offer a much higher floor in cash as well. So it's just made sense in all formats to pay up for tight ends this season. If you can't, if you're trying to fit in a tight end, is there an Antonio Gates this week at tight end, like a tight end free square streamer? There's not. Um, I would say on the cheap side, Charles Clay and Eric Ebron are two guys that if you're talking about solid, stable workloads. Eric Ebron's getting a lot of targets, man. Yeah, Ebron's been getting a ton of targets of late. Green Bay's not a particularly good secondary. And then Clay got a ton of targets last week against New England, kind of uh, assuming that market share that we saw early in the season. Miami's been one of one of the teams that's just dreadful against the tight end position. Oh, they're terrible. No, Charles Clay's it. Yeah. Charles Clay is the guy. Charles Clay against Miami. They have slow linebackers, and he's healthy. He was hurt yep. in the middle of the season, and his production declined which as we talked about just makes sense and now he's established health commanded a huge target share last week you gotta play charles clay i'll get you out of here on this one you know the question <laughs> which under the radar player do you qualify for truther status on drew dinkmeyer who's your guy who's on your taxi squads in dynasty give them to us someone get cj Procise a new ankle please for the love of god I need yes. CJ Procise to have a good ankle. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't think the Why ankle... Why not? Because, because every year... Bones it's the, and ligaments heal, man. Every year it's the freaking ankle. How does it happen that every year it's the ankle? And he comes off the injury report and he plays one game and then he's back on the injury report with the ankle. And it drives me nuts. He needed a full season, man. This happens. NFL teams bring these players back too early and they aggravate existing injuries. It just happens. He needs a full offseason to recover. Another player that I think will, that badly needed both surgery and a full season to recover is Jordan Matthews. Mm. I think Jordan Matthews has been playing with a knee injury for two seasons that needed to be repaired. I hope he gets the full maximum reconstruction that he can get that makes sense. He needs to get that and get his explosiveness back. So I'm hoping for that from Jordan Matthews. So I think now Jordan Matthews enthusiasts weren't necessarily truthers two years ago. We didn't mm. qualify. But if you have continued to be a Jordan Matthews fan, you now qualify for truther status because so many have abandoned him. So I think that's the other way you can qualify for truther status. Has this player been abandoned or was this player anonymous? Most of the players we talk about who qualify for truther status, they're just anonymous guys. They're Adam Thielen two years ago. But in the case of CJ Procise and in the case of Jordan Matthews, if you can maintain faith in a player's ability through extreme circumstances, multiple years 
of underwhelming performances, then you qualify for truther status on that player. CJ Procise will be my last round draft pick in every league next year. Every single league. I, I'm telling my league mates that are listening, I will be saving at least $4 in my auction draft because I know you bastards will bid me up to at least two or three. I don't care. I'm taking the chance on CJ Procise every year because if he stays healthy, he unlocks that entire offense. Yes. The entire offense gets unlocked if CJ Procise stays healthy. I mean, think about the running backs that flashed in that offense. Two years ago, it was Thomas Rawls. This year, it was Chris Carson. These are sub-replacement level talents. C.J. Procise is above replacement. C.J. Procise is electric in space, and he has the size to run between the tackles. He can be a 20-touch guy that flirts with RB1 status in fantasy next year of healthy. I mean, imagine, imagine getting... Well, I mean, people who drafted Alvin Kamara this year basically had that. But imagine getting Alvin Kamara with your last round pick, because that is the that is the upside that I believe CJ Procise has if he can stay on the field. That is the upside that I believe CJ Procise has if he can stay on the field. Pow! That's the show. Last show. show of the season. We did it. I love this show. The one guy that showed up in week 16, who was drafted in the first two rounds of redraft leagues, was of all players, Julio Jones, who had vanished all the other previous weeks. We're seeing the last vestiges right now of explosive, high upside Julio Jones. I threw a pen at the wall. I'm not gonna say I threw a pen through the computer screen because that I respect my computer too much. Beautiful machine, I respect computers. And this is the thing that I think fantasy sports has helped me more than anything, is if you can get people that are fans of the sport and the game to be fans of people as opposed to teams, they can have much, much better, healthier relationships with how they consume the sport. Because when you are affiliated just to a team and your your allegiances are just to a team, you get into really tribalistic mentalities and behaviors that make you condemn things that are not of your team and uh, approve or excuse bad behaviors from your team or players on your team. And you start to just judge if that guy is uh, on my team, I like him. If that guy isn't on my team, I don't like him. And it's just a really unhealthy way to live in general. Because these are people at the end of the day. And some are good people, some are bad people. And that's going to happen all through. But these are all human beings that are out there playing this very, very violent game. And when you, when you just look at the sport through the lens of a team, you become very desensitized to all the individuals that are competing. And I think it's a very unhealthy outlook. I am really glad I didn't turn the recorder off. <laughs> that was really well said. That was better than your Adam Thielen contract clause <laughs> nugget. He's got his own Millie Maker this week. If a guy has an opportunity to make a million dollars, you'll figure it out. There's just so much bad coaching 
in all these sports Ooh. from so, so many like old school thoughts. Like give me the young guys who are out there trying to figure out what's working, not only in their sport, but in other sports as well that they can carry over. As a Bears fan, I can't even wait to see like what's next after John Fox because it can't be worse. Their offensive line and defensive line talent is really, really good. If you have top 10 offensive line, top 10 defensive line, you have a, like a minimum barrier of winning six games in the NFL. You want to be strong in those areas. Close as you can be to the football, and then you kind of emanate outward. Men of that size with that athleticism are really rare. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's why you can never get enough. And if you're going to overpay... You know, overpay for your anchor lineman. When they get Meredith back, it's going to be interesting. They get a, 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 the second-year leap from Trubisky, potentially. Yeah. I mean, he's already getting better. It's nice to see him get incrementally better. You know, he has a low wonderlick, which I think is potentially caps his ceiling. The NFL teams need to have people in Devi leagues. Yeah. Like... <laughs> You gotta know, man. You gotta have this shit mapped out. But here's the the class we have in 2019. Here's the class we have in 2020. Let's be realistic about what our talent level is now. They're obsessed with Josh Rosen and Josh Darnold. Are they both named Josh? No. Sam. Sam. And Sa- wow, that I really did that. Holy cow, that's embarrassing. That's going in the outtakes. Josh Darnold, what a fucking idiot I sound like. I know. This is going to be insane that it's this backwards. Wyoming dude is going to go, like, top five. No, he's not. It is backwards, though. I have the order reversed, essentially, in what it yeah. is. I have it as, you know, Mayfield, Jackson, then Darnold Rosen, yeah. whereas the scouts have it with Rosen. Have you ever seen Rosen play? Yeah. Were you impressed? No. No. Not really. I was more impressed by Goff in college. He was a fucking swaggering guy. At oh, Cal. he was he was great. He was I mean, Wasn't he was he? he was like Jay Cutler who cares. I didn't really know much about Dak Prescott. Those ones to me are like not that hard to figure out because it's Mississippi State and there's like no other pros on the entire roster and they're in there competing for SEC titles. That's right. Like, like That's what right. like Cam Newton like, corollary. Like right. like what what is happening there, right? Like right. they're they you're not considering drafting anybody else on this team. And they're competing for SEC titles. Maybe the quarterback's really good. That's the reverse Markel Fultz corollary. Yeah, right. Exactly. Where exactly. you just can't draft a guy number one overall if he has a losing record and you can't get to the tournament. You gotta be kidding me. So I didn't I don't watch very much college basketball. The only Tatum that I really saw was a little bit in the tournament and then a little bit in summer league. And the stuff I saw in summer league, I was like, ah, oh, this guy is taking every bad shot that like I hate seeing like ISO long twos. I was like, I don't like this guy's game at all. And then literally the season starts and Brad Stevens has him like doing only the things he can do well. And he's doing all of it perfectly. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's going to be a monster. If guys like consistently try to ISO players and take like contested twos, then I have like long term concerns just about their basketball IQ to like figure things out like a Dion Waiters, basically like Devin he's, Booker. Yeah. He, he looks good to me. He, so he's a dude that looks really good everywhere, but like really advanced metrics because he ta- because he's forced to take a lot of bad shots because his team is terrible around him. But he has a chance to be really really good it's just hard to evaluate guys that are in that bad of a situation where there's literally no one else on the floor that can create for them at all 
This was my favorite guest spot I've ever done. Last year's show was my favorite show. Unfortunately, we told everybody to go get Amari Cooper and Corey Coleman. I don't remember so, this. I have no so, memory of past so shows hopeful, like that. So, so the specifics <laughs> about takes. I'm like, I only remember if, only if it was good do I remember it. I still believe in Corey Coleman for crying out loud. I still I'm going to be drafting a lot of Amari Cooper next year. You better believe Same. it. I love this show. We know where to focus on those teams like the Vikings that yep. don't use a third wide receiver. You got to find the teams that don't use a third wide receiver. Otherwise, it's just going to get spread to fucking nothing. All those weeks I was trying to, felt obliged to, to sneak in some Sammy Watkins all those weeks. It was a fucking waste. Mm. You know, projecting receivers high all fucking year. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> I'm waiting for that tweet where someone really gets me like that. Like, really gets me under the ribs. Like, you know, Fantasy Mansion, your projections have been X too high all season because clearly you were making the wrong assumptions about today's NFL. And, you know, you, you, your optimal lineup should have been more heavily skewed toward the running back because of your, you know, your, your failure to understand the dynamics of <laughs> NFL offenses. It would be such a demoralizing experience to read that tweet and to just be left naked on social media. And that never happened. No one's ever really got me in a way that, like, I've been waiting for years. For someone to see, you know, the real weak spots in my game, right? Like, throughout the season. And I'm like, I guess no one noticed that we really had this <laughs> massive flaw in our projections all season that really won't be corrected probably for years. Wow, really fucked up there. Pretty much all season. It was to complete, it was off all season. Was it an anomaly or a trend? I don't know. We're going to find out together. How about that? Man, I wish I could go redo that and, you know, tweak the dials in week one. Can't do it. It's over. Sorry. Guess no one noticed. So your money's still good. Don't worry. My entire life is working on projections. I know exactly what you're saying when you're like five weeks in, you're like, huh, probably. Well, I should have counted for that. That's why I burn the old projections. And I have a special <laughs> incinerator on my computer where all that stuff goes. I'll never have to look at it again. I'm like, ah! <laughs> what was I thinking? Oh, all those weeks that I had digs over Thielen. Oh, my God. We do our projections, and then we just spit it out. Like, we just we do a bunch of inputs, and then we see what the inputs result in right. from, from a points perspective. So we're not, when we go through the original projection process, we're not trying to tinker to manipulate. Then when we see the output, sometimes you're like, oh, fuck, I can't, I can't do that. Like, we can't have that guy there. And every week it was a conversation with me and Mike Leone, my business partner, on like Diggs versus Thielen. Like Diggs keeps scoring touchdowns, but everything we have says Thielen is the better player. To just give Dez the benefit of the doubt. Oh my God. What a fucking puke job that was. What a, I mean, I just feel guilty. Too much grit. He cares too much. Because you were born into this world as an asshole, and then you were predisposed to become an asshole coach and just fuck with everyone, from your players to your fans to fantasy gamers, you fucking assholes. So thank you, Rams. No. Him telling the Marquise Wilson, uh, Adam Thielen story was was fantastic because he just stopped me in my tracks that day. I it couldn't was, wait for you to hear that. It was a sad, sad day for me. Uh, because I usually with kitchen, I almost always have something that I can come back with, but I was just dead. I was dead in the water that day. When you were talking about, uh, discounting senior year performances or last season in college performances, 
because my man Marquise was on that list. He was one of the early breakout guys. Yeah, then Thielen ended up being comp to someone like, you know, Eric Decker. Yep. Um, which makes sense. I mean, yep. I love those comps. Like, it's not like we're trying. It's not like we're trying to comp Jimmy Garoppolo to Tony Romo because they went to the same college, you know, or these are like, you know, Minnesota golden boys in the case of Thielen and Decker. It's just that they're the same height. They're the same weight. They're like, there's not that many comps. And people are like, oh, dude, this is a ball. You're a comp a white guy to a white guy. Well, <laughs> it's not me. I'm not trying to do that. Like, it's, it's not like I'm out al- there. Like, it's an algorithm, damn it. I wonder who the guys with a certain build and certain athletic profiles and production. What, what, what do you want me to do? I was like, Cole Beasley's easily the whitest receiver. So you would think Cole Beasley would comp to other white guys. Julian Edelman is the first guy you think of. Right, but he doesn't. You know I found I found a guy that your system does not have. Who? Orson Charles. I think he's going to get the playing time with Mahomes this week because I think they'll, in terms of targets, I think they'll have him out on the field. I don't know. I kind of think they'll give Charles more looks than Harris because they actually use Harris a lot. They'll keep Harris either in his inline role or they'll just yeah. rest him because he's valuable. Yeah, because yeah. I view him as like an athletic tight end. Uh, but he is that move tight end guy. He's not like an inline blocker. That's a sneaky guy to play. Oh my yeah. god, GPP! All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he can, look at the dart throw. Oh, dude, you don't need dart throws in week 17 when Todd Gurley and Le'Veon Bell and Ezekiel Elliott are essentially yeah. off the board. It's just basically lock in Gronk or play Clay. You have look at Mike you covered Clark, everything in the show. Covered basketball, dynasty, redraft, DFS. Your finding players that don't exist in the site you're helping troubleshooting the site needed hot takes on the decline of the nfl and anthem protests and we would have really hit hit everything i can't (laughs) tell you how happy i am that we did not talk about (laughs) the decline of the nfl in terms of viewership or quality of play i love this show Travis Kelsey outscores every wide receiver next season. Then the Houston Texans go out and sign Josh Johnson, and they continue to you know, agitate me once again. They gave away their season. We'd rather punt the season than take a chance yeah. on losing to the Patriots in the AFC Championship. It's not worth it for us to lose half our season ticket holders. They're that scared. And A, that's not how great leaders act. They don't act afraid in situations like that. That's why you have public relations. Yep. So that you can communicate well to your season ticket holders. And B, I believe that fans are loyal to winning. Ah, a spectacular touchdown run. And the stadium roars. All is forgiven. I got involved with uh, this charity, Charity Water, during the course of the year, and their founder, Scott Harrison, is one of the most inspirational people I've ever heard talk. And I saw, I retweeted this 18-minute interview that he did yesterday, or that I saw come across my timeline yesterday. And one of the things he said in it was, our founding mission is essentially to make sure that we do everything with integrity as the very first decision point. Is this the right thing to do? Yes or no? If it is, do it social media and the environment that we live in has changed the perspective that we all operate through we all spew out information you know we all like we post we post we post instead of take in information and so i think we've all gotten better at talking and we've all gotten worse at listening and when you get worse at listening as a whole 
you have less of a chance of being empathetic or thinking through a situation from a different perspective because you're only focused on your lens because social media has kind of turned the camera around for you to broadcast your life to everybody else. Choosing where they go on vacation based on how it's going to look on Instagram. <laughs> it's hilarious. Pictures of food every day. Size fucking people. <laughs> There's also an element of social media that's speeding things up. For sure. The, these cultural adjustments that happen, they happen much more quickly because it can be disseminated so much more quickly. When you speed stuff up, you just you hit more conflict because the pace um, makes people uncomfortable. But I was getting excited because he was asking me the questions I've always wanted someone to ask. <laughs> right? I was like, oh, man, I wish my wife could ask these questions <laughs> once in a while. I love this show. Trent Richardson 2.0. That was a mistake. Fuck you, man. I'm upset. This You can see my face in the monitor. <laughs> this is not an act. And there are occasional times during the course of an NFL or NBA or MLB season that I'm watching a game and I see a player that I have literally never seen the name before. And Michael Clark was that case. And they should be ashamed of themselves. I, 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 I'm speechlessly enraged. The Patriots always notice. All right, let me look this up. New England front office... <laughs> Saginaw Valley, because I always mention this. And I always mention this guy, but I don't actually know who he is. Nick Casario. Saginaw Valley State. The home of Jeff Janis. All-conference selection at John Carroll. Nick and his wife. I don't know why I'm continuing to read about his wife. <laughs> he will be free! He will be free! They think they're clever, hiding him away. What all they're doing is making the price the Patriots ultimately pay lower. They've been unknowingly providing future value for the Patriots all along with their incompetent handling of Jeff Janis. I love Julian Edelman, and it would be great to see him in a number four wide receiver role. <laughs> <laughs> I love this show. In his swagger, his short, stubby swagger, we never consider drafting Baker Mayfield. He's too similar to Johnny Manziel. <laughs> I mean, what? A crotch grab. A crotch grab. Really? Think about how stupid that sentence is. Come on! Triple double, triple double, triple double, triple double, triple double, oh, triple double, oh, triple double, oh, she sells triple doubles, oh, triple double, oh, almost had a triple double, had a triple double. They're telling him to fuck off. I love this show. And everyone is just gonna have to eat it. Jam um in. Jam him in. I love this show. Don't draft him. Let me have him all. Give me it all. Give it all to me. I want all the juju. It's been an hour and a half, and we've yet to talk about this slate at all. <laughs> yes! I love this show. Uh, Tilton. I almost said Tilton. T.Y. Tilton. T.Y. Tilton.
Josh Darnold. Holy cow, that's embarrassing. 